Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, few shows wowed me as a kid as much as the $6 million man, Steve Austin. This month marks 50 years since the debut of its first season on TV. There have been some made-for-TV movies beforehand. But what would it cost to build a $6 million man in 2024? What would it look like? Is it even feasible? We find out. From fiction to fact, we meet a Vancouver engineer working on a smart glove that helps those who've lost strength and mobility due to a stroke. Uh, We look at how it works and how it could provide a real helping hand with rehabilitation in more ways than one. It wouldn't be Oscar nomination announcement day without surprises and snubs. We look at some of the biggest ones and we take a peek at which Canadians will be up for an Oscar come March. The federal court has ruled that the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act during the so-called Freedom Convoy that descended on Ottawa and in other parts of the country uh, back in 2022 violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We speak with the head of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one of the parties to the case about the ruling, what it means, and Ottawa's quick decision to appeal. But first, an investigation is underway tonight after a passenger plane crashed soon after takeoff near Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories early Tuesday. Reports say the British Aerospace Jetstream was registered to Northwestern Air Lease. An international mining company, Rio Tinto, says the plane was carrying its staff to a mine in the Northwest Territories. We know there have been fatalities, no word on how many just yet. A retired Transportation Safety Board investigator joins me to explain what happens now. Let's start with some developing news that's unfolding uh, this evening in the Northwest Territories, uh, where the coroner service says there have been fatalities from a plane crash near the community of Fort Smith. That's down near the Alberta border. Joint Rescue Coordination Center Trenton confirmed the military responded when the plane lost contact shortly after taking off from near Fort Smith, again about 740 kilometers south of the capital, Yellowknife, near the Alberta boundary. Now, late tonight, the Canadian press is now reporting that the plane was headed to a diamond mine in northern Canada. Mining company Rio Tinto confirmed that this evening. Uh, The statement says, we have been informed by authorities that a plane on its way to our Divic mine, our Diavic mine rather, carrying a number of our people crashed near Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, Canada, resulting in fatalities. Now the International Mining Company uh, released a statement of condolences, but did not say how many people were killed or if all were employees. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada says it was a British aerospace jet stream registered to a company called Northwestern Airlease. The Fort Smith Health Centre in the Northwest Territories activated its mass casualty operations. Police in the Northwest Territories are assisting. And in a statement earlier today, the Premier, R.J. Simpson, responded to the tragic Northwestern air crash, saying, It is with a heavy heart that I express my deepest condolences to the family, friends and loved ones of those who were aboard Uh, the Northwestern air flight that crashed outside of Fort Smith today. Well, joining me now is Bill Yearwood. He's a former accident investigator for the Transportation Safety Board. Uh, He's a safety action investigations private investigator now and author of a book called Getting It. Uh, Bill, thank you for your time tonight. Uh, You're welcome to have me and I'm uh, happy to help. Yeah, I mean, again, we're we're just finding out more uh, right now, but uh, just your first impressions of trying to carry out an investigation. We know that uh, it's not, it's a relatively remote area and we're in the middle of winter. Yeah, that's certainly a consideration uh, on trying to deploy a team. Uh, One has to to, uh, consider that um, we, uh, at the TSB in, in, in my tenure, uh, we're always prepared for that, even even 
here in BC because we we uh, can get into into pretty harsh terrain just by going up in the mountains. So um, so that is part of it. Uh, understanding how the uh, wreckage can be uh, accessed and um, how we would need to get there, whether we need helicopters or, or um, uh, uh, would be traveling by snowmobile, etc., is a consideration. After that, we have to, as, as a manager, one would, would um, choose a, a team that, um, if you can find somebody in, in your team that has experience on that, aircraft or those type of operations and we combine that with uh, maintenance uh, or investigators with a maintenance background and um, whilst that's they're getting ready to go um, support investigators on site will start accessing information as to weather tracking records etc Right. I, I suppose the first step is search and rescue, followed by then an investigation. Yes. Well, uh, the the um, safety board isn't usually involved in the search and rescue. No. Other other than just to, to know whether they have found the wreckage, and once it's it's found, uh, then then um, where do we have to go to to get to work to try and find out the cause and. Um, and like I say, uh, trying to to assess the the magnitude of of the job. Uh, as you say, every time um, there is an accident, the investigators have a project that that isn't very well uh, defined. And as we just have to be prepared to uh, to uh, take on what we find on site. Tell me a bit about the about the aircraft itself. I mean, this is a relatively common aircraft, although this company in particular is one of the few around the world that has a fairly large fleet of them. But tell me a bit about the British Airstream 31 and 32. Well, I, I've uh, never flown them myself, um, I, but I've had to um, investigate uh, other aircraft that have similar engines. So my my knowledge or of the aircraft or the first thing that comes to mind is okay it's got this type of engine and and how uh, do those engines behave under certain conditions and um and that's that's just some background information that when when you uh, start an investigation you're it's i always say it's kind of like sesame street you're looking at which one of these things doesn't fit? It should go like this, but it doesn't. So, so then that gives you a path to to go down and see why it doesn't uh, fit into the normal operation. Um, of course, the we get help from the manufacturer and maintenance and and the company itself as to they have lots of expertise with the aircraft and and. Um, they are uh, a party uh, to support the investigators. Um, we understand that everybody other than than the TSB investigators is biased because they don't want to um, find that they uh, made an error that led to this accident. But it's for the investigator to try and, and see from all the different parties um, what they can 
eliminate and focus on what they can't eliminate. Right. I mean, to be clear, this is a fairly common aircraft, right? Uh, the, the Airstream. I mean, we've we've heard of them, and they seem to be in operation Somewhat. and have been in operation for decades, right around the world. Yes, yes, and and uh, you know we we have to eliminate um, the aircraft uh, at some point, and if we can't, then then we focus on on the aircraft. But um, one must remember that that um, this was never intended to happen. You know, it's not, right. so it's, a, it's an accident. So we keep in mind that um, what happened, or we try to find out what happened that, that was not planned, what, what caused, whether, it, whether some bolt came loose or um, a pilot turned left instead of right, or, or um, you know, even back in the design of the aircraft, uh, the ergonomics uh, made it different from uh, another aircraft how did that affect the human so all of those things under certain conditions okay well you know did somebody have experience doing it differently and 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 this aircraft's a little different but right the, the the weather plays a part the terrain plays a part the the load plays a part um the the and and or all they are all parts of a successful operation, fueling, um, you know, maintenance of the aircraft, uh, the crew training, etc. And we go through um, systematically to try and um, and remove the the possibilities of some of those things and those that are left as possible. And you focus in and 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 try and come up with with uh, a path. And right. when the investigators first get up there, um, they have to to start with trying to preserve perishable evidence, things like uh, tracks through the snow or the way the trees are broken or scars in the trees um, that might change from removing the aircraft or even continued snowfall to cover up the track. So getting a picture drawn of how the aircraft uh, approached its final spot where it ended up um, is important. So, so that's, uh, you know, making sure that the site's secure, um, getting to talk to witnesses if there are any on site or were on site, uh, talk to them, soon and um it's it's very important to to get people when their memory is fresh so right. it's it's a it's a important task to to um get that information and then collaborate the witnesses um information with the physical evidence how about uh, do, are you do you know because I know you've talked about this in the past. Do you know if there are flight recorders on 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 an aircraft of that size? Uh, they can be yes. Um, this one nineteen. Yes, you'll have you'll have uh, uh, some level of of recording, uh, 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 cockpit voice recorder, but not necessarily uh, flight data recorder. So uh, the the unless um, uh, this. There's some provisions I would expect there would be something in that aircraft and and hopefully that's preserved. 
Bill Yearwood is a former accident investigator for the Transportation Safety Board. Uh, we're talking tonight about a plane crash that happened this morning. A British, I should get the name right here, the British Aerospace Jetstream is registered to Northwestern Air. It went down shortly after takeoff, apparently, from Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories. That's about 700 kilometers south of Yellowknife, the capital near the Alberta border. Now, Rio Tinto, the mining company, the mining international mining giant, tonight released a statement saying that, uh, that the plane was headed to a diamond mine uh, in the Northwest territories um and that that's where that's essentially and they haven't said whether all the passengers are on board were their employees they have talked about fatalities and offered their condolences they haven't said how many people were killed or if everyone on board were in fact uh, employees of theirs uh bill what happens now you sort of mentioned how this starts to be pieced together but this is a long process and one can imagine the conditions of where this plane went down in a remote area uh that it may take a while forever for even the investigation to really get underway well, the investigation gets on the way right away with uh, what we can gather information from from the company, uh, secure records, etc. But the the investigation on site, uh, uh, like you say, can be um, um, difficult and and uh, take some time depending on the conditions. But what the the team is endeavoring to do is is um, document and and collect all of the um, wreckage. Uh, they the assess the de- debris field as to how big it is, the trail um, it makes, um, and and things. A, a lot of those things um, are not perishable, but it's important to get. Uh, uh, it documented by photograph as to where it was and how it was sitting uh, when you get to the site, and um, and and some of the the information uh, that's a little simpler to explain is propellers. You know how are they bent? What uh, angles they're at? Because that can uh, work backwards for you to tell you uh, power and the the um, the settings on the props when when they when they uh, came to a halt or struck um, the terrain. So sometimes that takes more than just what you see on site, but you have to disassemble it and see marks inside the the gearboxes to to identify how things are positioned. Right. I was looking back today, Bill, and it strikes me that much like in the U.S., there there just are very few fatal passenger plane crashes in these in this country these days, especially planes of that size it has become a rarity now thankfully it is we we are uh, fortunate to to move a lot of people by air um, without incident it's a tragedy when when uh, something like this um, happens and um, uh, the the important part of the TSB's job is to find out what caused it and make recommendations to um, just reduce the chance of it happening again. Important to share the information so all operators can learn from that. And uh, it, it takes some time to get recommendations out, but if the information is, is shared, um, 
uh, operators of the same type or same type of operation um, uh, can uh, take action before even the report comes out to um, uh, improve safety in their operations. Well, Bill, I appreciate your time on this. And I know we don't know much, but uh, I suspect we'll begin to learn more as, uh, you know, as, as, as tomorrow rises and so on. So thank you for your time tonight. You're very welcome. And uh, again, it's always sad. And, and we think about those who have perished. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, condolences, of course, to everyone involved in this tonight. We'll find out more about that uh, as the hours pass as well. Bill, thank you again. Cheers. Good night. We will soon be taking the oath of office on the steps of the United States Capitol. America doesn't do coronations. We believe in choices. We believe in democracy and we believe in freedom. Uh, The last two standing in the Republican race to be the presidential nominee come November. Donald Trump, of course, Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina. It was all down tonight. Let's be honest. It it really hinged a lot on tonight on how well Nikki Haley could do in New Hampshire. Uh, But it does indeed look like this race to face Joe Biden in November will be perhaps a coronation of sorts. Why? Uh, Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire primary, not by a ton. He certainly didn't blow away the competition the way he did in Iowa. But uh, again, the magnitude of the victory is still coming into focus. But it's clear his hold on the Republican Party hasn't wavered, despite all the many other things that are going on around him, including, of course, all those criminal cases. Here's one of his former chiefs of staff, uh, Reince Priebus. Here's how he put it tonight. I don't think it's a surprise. I think we saw this coming for a long time. And really, the only issue now is how big the margin is for Donald Trump. Yeah, last I checked, it was 54% uh, to 44.5 for Nikki Haley. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who dropped out of the race, had a sliver of votes in there, as did a few others. Now, Haley had intensified her criticism of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate, but her appeals appear to have failed to resonate with enough voters there. She did offer her congratulations to Trump uh, in the primary tonight and told supporters, quote, this race is far from over and bad to continue her campaign. She celebrated closing the gap between her campaign and that of the former president's. Have a listen. Today we got close to half of the vote. We still have a ways to go, but we keep moving up. Well, (laughs) we shall see. Uh, This race, of course, pushes ahead now eventually to South Carolina, where uh, Haley was governor, but trails apparently in polling there. Uh, Chris Gallieri is a political scientist and New Hampshire primary expert at St. Anselm College, author of Stranger in a Strange State, The Politics of Carpetbagging, from Robert Kennedy to Scott Brown. Chris, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I guess anybody who watches this and was hoping for some sort of race was hoping that something would happen. So there'd be some kind of breakthrough tonight uh, because, of course, Nikki Haley being the last one standing here uh, facing Donald Trump. But does it look like it doesn't look like it was enough, does it? It does not. Um, It was a much closer race than the last week's worth of polling uh, suggested it would be. You had polls showing Trump up by 15 points, 20 points, 25 points. Um, So, you know, in the sense that it was not that level of blowout, you could argue that it was something of a moral victory for Haley. Um, But, you know, her problem is New Hampshire was, you know, if you were going to design a state in the lab, for somebody like uh, Nikki Haley to beat Donald Trump in a primary, it would look a lot like New Hampshire. 
and right. moving forward into South Carolina, into the Super Tuesday states, she just doesn't have other opportunities that look like this. No. Maybe for listeners who don't understand, I mean, one of the things I found really interesting about New Hampshire, of course, is that independents are allowed to vote. So there could have been a bit of a rush to Haley, uh, especially after Ron DeSantis dropped out, just leaving her uh, to to sort of soak up all the opposition to Donald Trump vote. Uh, what went right and what went wrong for Nikki Haley tonight, do you think? Um, what went right was that she uh, had the endorsement of New Hampshire's governor, Chris Sununu, who's extraordinarily popular, has uh, served a record-tying four terms as governor. She had the endorsement of the union leader, uh, statewide newspaper uh, that endorsed her very late in the game, but timed so people would see it. Um, I think those things probably helped boost her. Uh, she did well amongst independents. There was a lot of turnout from independents. There were even Democrats who changed their party registration to undeclared so that they could vote for her in the Democratic primary as a strategic move to stop Trump. That said, um, things that went wrong, um, one is that Donald Trump ran for a second term, ran for uh, ran in the primaries for another term. Um, he has this uh, personal hold over a very large chunk of the Republican Party. Uh, and it seems like, you know, if there's something that will dislodge it, it hasn't happened yet. January 6th didn't do it. The indictments didn't do it. Um, the civil judgments, none of it has really mattered for that chunk of the electorate. And the other thing that I think went wrong for her was Ron DeSantis dropped out. Um, DeSantis really? was not campaigning yeah. much here, but he was consistently pulling, you know, five, six, seven percent in the polls. And, you know, had he been an active candidate, um, my guess is that, a, you know, a good chunk of his, probably most of uh, the people who would have voted for DeSantis wound up voting for Trump. Um, if, if, you know, t take five points away from Trump's margin, we're all having very different conversations tonight. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch, of course, because Ron DeSantis, one of the reasons he had to drop out is he's, he's sort of, he basically spent all his time and money and energy in Iowa, got the got the endorsement of the governor and lost badly. Uh, mm -hmm. Nikki Haley gets the endorsement of the governor, spends a lot of time in New Hampshire, a lot of energy in New Hampshire, loses, not badly. Um, but it feels like, at least in 2024, this may not be repeatable, but that Donald Trump's kind of rewritten, rewritten the, the nomination game. He doesn't do it the way you used to have to do it. Yeah, and I think that is true to an extent. Um, and, and Trump, you know, has always used his celebrity to his advantage here. You know, he did not need to go into coffee shops and diners and and county fairs and introduce himself to voters because everybody knows who knew who he was. He's probably the most famous person um, ever to have been elected president before he got famous or before he was elected. Um, you know, he was a huge public figure for decades. Um, that's different when you're the governor of Ohio or a senator from South Carolina. Nobody knows who those people are. Um, so they have to do all of the, you know, handshaking, retail politics, uh, meet and greets, all, all, those, all those sort of retail politics things that Donald Trump was able to short circuit entirely. Tell me a bit about the mood in New Hampshire then, because obviously, you know, if you're looking at it from the outside, you can see where where Donald Trump has has a great command of the Republican faithful these days, but mightn't do as well against Joe Biden in a general election come November. Whereas Nikki Haley seemed, I mean, this is 
this is speculation, but Nikki Haley seemed quite primed to beat someone like Joe Biden if, if in fact, she became the nominee. And yet, even in a place like New Hampshire, where she did stand a decent chance of winning for uh, for all the reasons you described earlier, uh, she couldn't do it. And it, and it's it is surprising. It is. I, I mean, I find it a bit surprising that there is this sort of there isn't even a desire to even take a flyer on somebody else, see if they couldn't make a go of it. Yeah, yeah. And and that's just the, the, the confounding thing here. Um, historically, presidents who don't get reelected, their party doesn't really want anything to do with them for a while after that. Uh, you know, no, Democrats didn't want Jimmy Carter to come back in 1984. Republicans didn't want uh, the first President Bush to come back in 1996. They want to win elections. You don't win elections with people who've just lost elections. Um, like it, it, it really is that simple. Um, and, uh, you know, Haley has been making a version of this pitch. We saw we heard that from her tonight saying, you know, Republicans have been on a losing streak since Donald Trump got into the White House. Uh, let's run somebody who's not in their 80s. Uh, you know, these these should be compelling arguments. Um you know, she's somebody with, you know, when she started rising during the debates, I said, you know, if you were a realtor, if she were a house and you were a realtor, you would say she has a solid foundation and really good bones. Um, <laughs> you know, she's relatively young. She's uh, she's Indian American, the child of immigrants with a com- compelling story there. She's been a governor. She's been an ambassador. You know, there are a lot of ingredients there where you look at that and say, OK, this this could be a really successful presidential candidate. But Republicans weren't interested in that. They want to go with the guy who wants to relitigate the 2020 election endlessly and uh, use a second term to wreak vengeance on everyone he thinks has wronged him since 2015. What does that look like? I mean, I, I don't want to get into the weeds of policy and so on, but what is that in the minds of, of people in New Hampshire? How does that make for a better New Hampshire? Um, I don't think it does beyond the half or so of the Republican uh, primary electorate that voted for Trump. Um, right. You know, New Hampshire is, you know, even though it's in the Northeast, it is not some sort of flaming liberal state. This is not Massachusetts no. or Vermont. What it, but what it is, um, is a state where people value local control. They value smaller government, they, you know, low taxes. But they also like politicians who get things done. You don't generally win elections in New Hampshire by running as an ideologue, uh, regardless of party. You know, Chris Sununu, our, our Republican governor, run, when he runs for re-election, he talks about um, more nurses, better schools, that sort of thing. Um, our senators, Gene Shaheen and Maggie Hassan, they, they were able to win in what had been a very Republican state by, talk, by, by running as pragmatic problem solvers. We're not flaming liberals like the ones you see on C-SPAN. Uh, you know, we, we just want to like, you know, let's do open road tolling on, on, on the interstate. Wouldn't that be great? And people are like, oh, wow, that, that is really good. Okay, you get a second term. Um, I, I think, you know, come the general election, uh, the same things that helped Trump win this primary will probably repel a lot of rank-and-file voters in New Hampshire. Yeah, Bernie Sanders is from Burlington, not not from Vermont, which is nearby. I mean, I grew up in Quebec, so obviously we used to go through New Hampshire all the time. And you noticed you went you went from the Green Mountain State to you know uh, live free or die, right? Right on the license plates yes, at the time. Yes. It used to it used to be a succinct difference between the two places. Uh, when you look at what 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 can Nikki Haley? I mean, she's talking about 
carrying on here. And one wonders whether it makes, I mean, obviously Donald Trump would like to just end this now. He has other things to worry about. Um, mm-hmm. But in the sense of, of Nikki Haley, this talk of I'm going to continue, I mean, she obviously needs to continue to fundraise. Is there going to be any appetite for her to parade on this? I mean, 45% isn't that isn't bad. She, she can hang her hat on that. But is it enough to, to, to soldier on? I think she's going to try. Um, I think she's hoping her argument that Trump loses elections, we will lose if we run Trump. She's hoping that will resonate. Uh, She used her uh, remarks tonight not so much to concede the election as to uh, introduce herself to a national audience that's probably just starting to pay attention to the primary now. Um, I think those are smart moves, but I think she's also, you know, she's just playing a really bad hand as well as she can. Um, And I think it's going to be really challenging for her to convince donors, yes, you need to write me more checks so I can compete in South Carolina where polls showing that I'm trailing by 25, 30 points to Donald Trump. And maybe she says that's what the poll said in New Hampshire, and I only lost by 10 points or 9 points or whatever the final margin is. I'm not sure how compelling an argument that's going to be um, for you know conservative donors who are you know looking. Okay, do I want to tick off the eventual nominee by donating to his opponent? Do I you know what's my future in Republican politics if I write this big check? That sort of thing. Yeah, I, I was reading. I, I, I this is kind of a, a this is a unique race with Trump in it. But I was reading that I think only one Democratic candidate years and years ago law won Iowa and New Hampshire then lost. Right? I mean, it's she's fighting history as well as Donald Trump, and that sounds like a like a daunting task. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just really tough um, when you have somebody who can win in two very different electorates. Um, you know, that's usually a good sign that they're going to go on to win a lot of primaries. Um, the only thing that I think should give us pause when we're talking about this is that Trump has been running as uh, a de facto incumbent president. You know, he's he's running as if he were a sitting president seeking renomination for another term. But if you look at the results through that lens, then suddenly they look a lot less good for him. Suddenly, right. like imagine that Joe Biden was only getting 54% of the vote and Dean Phillips or not Dean Phillips, somebody like somebody young with ambitions like Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom was getting 47, 46% of the vote. I think we'd be having a really different conversation about President Biden's reelection prospects. Right. When you put it that way. And and, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. President Biden's problems. Right. President Biden did win tonight, even though he wasn't. They had tried to shift uh, the, the, the primary away from New Hampshire, do it later in the month. And then Democrats in New Hampshire said no way, as as people in New Hampshire want to do. And he still won because they, they had a write in for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was Joe Biden's best ever showing in a New Hampshire primary. Uh, and his name was not even on the ballot. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that is probably the end of the Dean Phillips, Marianne Williamson Thing. And I, th- I think both the state Democrats and the president's reelection campaign are really happy with this result because it means they can both forget about it and pretend it didn't happen. And then the state party can try to get back uh, pride of place for 2028. Chris Galdieri with us this half hour from New Hampshire. He's a political scientist, primary expert at St. Anselm College. He's author of Stranger in a Strange State as well. We're talking about the uh, New Hampshire primary tonight. Donald Trump still ahead, 54.7%. He's won this. Uh, Nikki Haley not too far behind at 43.8%. If you look at the total votes, it's only about a 25,000 vote 
difference, 126,000 to 101,000. So a pretty good showing for Nikki Haley, but she probably needed a better showing. Uh, Chris, at this point, if you're Donald Trump, you probably want to stop the whole the whole Republican nomination fight and focus on Joe Biden and focus on all the other complications that exist in his life at this point. Do you think that's what he's going to do? Because he was quite, I mean, he certainly took New Hampshire seriously. He was attacking Nikki Haley regularly, uh, if somewhat incoherently at times. Um, but is this, now do you think he can afford to just turn his back on this whole thing for a while and go on to fighting, fighting for November? I, I think that I, that's a really great question. And I think part of the reason he is reacting so badly to the prospect of her staying in the race, I mean, first of all, it's just his personality. Uh, the thing he right. cares about more than anything else is winning and dominance and having someone that he feels like he has beaten say, well, I'm not going away yet is, is I think, probably personally offensive to him. Um, but beyond that, you know, you mentioned the complications in his life. You know, he's got the corporate law fraud, corporate fraud, uh, trial. He's got the de- second Gene Carroll defamation trial. Um, he's facing 91 indictments in four criminal cases. I think Trump wants to wrap this up early in part because um, you know, I, I think Trump world is worried that uh, what if Republican voters realize, oh, wow, this stuff is for real. This stuff is right. whether or not you think it's a good idea. This is actually happening. He's going to stand trial. Or he's just gotten, you know, the damages from one of the, from the defamation case, for instance, uh, could be big enough to bankrupt him at the rate he's going. The corporate fraud trial could lead to, uh, um, you know, what, what's called the corporate death penalty for the Trump organization. Um, you know, these are things that, again, I think will repel swing voters come the fall. It will alienate a decent chunk of uh, self-identified Republicans. And, you know, I, I think the, Trump, the thinking in the Trump campaign is wrap it up early so, you know, we're not having these headlines next to, you know, oh, Super Tuesday tomorrow, you know, that kind of thing. Um, right. So, and, and again, it, it's just, you know, um, you know, it, it highlights the um, tremendous risks in, involved in picking Donald Trump as your party's nominee for president. Speaking of picking things, someone was mentioning me today that mentioned to me today that wouldn't Nikki Haley be a great candidate for vice president? I said, well, he's never going to pick Nikki Haley because she takes up too much space. He wants someone who settles perfectly in the back. Like Mike Pence was the perfect vice president because he was such a non-entity. Yeah, yeah, and, and Pence served an important role um, in the in the 2016 campaign and then in the Trump right. White House, which was being the the essentially um, um, ambassador to normal mainstream republicans basically okay here's this guy you know he's he's a midwestern governor he's very conservative he's deeply religious and and so on uh if you don't like trump you, you're okay with pence um i don't think he's going to he might not go in that direction this year you know he's been talking about elise stefanik a congresswoman yeah. in the house leadership who has gone full maga and then some um since 2016 or you know people are talking up tim scott and you know that 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 sort of those sorts of folks and i think the danger for any vice president that donald trump picks aside from the fact that he tried to have his last one killed on january 6th (laughs) well there's that is that yeah yeah um you know let's say trump wins let's say he doesn't decide we need to blow up the two-term limit on presidential service well his vice president is going to spend four years running for president for 2028. 
I cannot right. imagine Donald Trump would be happy about that. I, I think he would be furious every time his vice president went to Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina and tried to start lining up support for for um, for their eventual presidential campaign. So I think, you know, granted, there will be, be other things to worry about if Trump gets elected uh, in, in 2024, but I cannot imagine his vice president would have uh, an enjoyable time in the office. Yeah, he'll just have, they will just have to ask the last one, a bit of a poison chalice. Chris, uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you for having me. Let's head to a pretty significant federal court decision today. They ruled the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act during the so-called Freedom Convoy, you'll remember that, uh, that descended on Ottawa in 2022, violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In his ruling, Justice Richard Mosley, who's well-known for ruling on security matters, said the move was, quote, unreasonable and outside the scope of the law. Uh, he, this is what he had said in his decision. I have concluded that the decision to issue the proclamation does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, reasonableness, justification, transparency, transparency, and intelligibility, and was not justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that were required to be taken into consideration. In other words, I've had a look at what the, the, the circumstance, what the lay of the land was at that time, and I don't think that it met the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. Now, keep in mind, this is a very, an, it would have been a never before used tool since it had been brought into um, brought into effect in the late 80s to replace the War Measures Act. So this is a big deal. It gives the government a lot of power. Um, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland um, says the federal government will appeal this decision and doesn't agree with the judge's ruling. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. Right. Sure. But the deal was, did you have the tools to take care of it without doing this? That's been the question at the heart of this the whole time. It's what Justice Rouleau and his commission found that it was reasonable and justified to invoke the Emergencies Act. And today, a federal court judge said, you know what? It wasn't because you had other tools at your disposal, uh, such as policing and so on, that you could have used without invoking the Emergencies Act, without taking these tremendous powers. The Canadian Constitution Foundation was one of those who was part of this case uh, alongside the Canada Canadian Civil Liberties Association and others. Joanna Barron is executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and she joins me now. Joanna, thank you. Great to be with you. Let's boil this down to the essentials because there is so much around the convoy and, and the blockades and, you know, and, and the decision, the Emergencies Act, the invocation of the Emergencies Act and so on. But this was a pretty narrow case in the sense that you were asking the court to weigh in on a certain issue around using the Emergencies Act. Uh, what was decided? Yeah. So basically, the court found that cabinet did not have reasonable grounds to conclude that a national public order emergency existed in January and early February of 2022. Um, and the court also found that the measures sort of subsequent to the Emergencies Act, the Emergencies Act, you can think of it as like it unlocks this uh, toolbox of magical powers that government usually doesn't have. And what the government in this case decided to do was impose the economic measures, which famously froze bank accounts without a warrant, but also granted police powers to stop protests, 
by the way, across Canada. I don't know if many people appreciate that this did not just operate in Ottawa. It was across Canada for the time that the act was in force. Um, and the judge found that some of those measures actually didn't violate the charter, but they did violate the rights to free speech as well as the right against unreasonable search and seizure. Yep. And they were not justified. And what's interesting here is that if people just sort of look at cause and effect and, and you know, maybe you lived in downtown Ottawa, you weren't happy with the noise. That's that's important. But this unlocked a toolbox that, as you mentioned, that government rarely has access to. And it means a lot. I mean, it, in this case, it expired after a month and so on. But it does allow for the idea that it can be that there could be a lot of oversteps here. Yeah, absolutely. Some legal scholars have called this a de facto constitutional amendment that once the Emergencies Act is in place, the government can do things um, they, they normally couldn't do within the boundaries of the Constitution. And it's also important to just note kind of the history. The Emergencies Act replaces something called the War Measures Act, mm-hmm. which was used to intern uh, Japanese Canadians during World War II, was also um, used during the FLQ crisis. Um, And so we're talking about very, very uh, tremendous powers that it grants the federal executive. Right. And, and and for listeners to be reminded, it had never been used since it had been uh, come into, into force in the late 80s to replace the War Measures Act. So if you look at the case itself, what were you arguing in terms of, of the unreasonableness of this? And where did the judge agree with you in the sense that where where did this argument that the government made to justify invoking the Emergencies Act fall apart? So there were two main areas. The first was that no national emergency, which is very specifically defined in the Emergencies Act, it didn't exist. And in part, that was a sort of straightforward finding, in our opinion, because we know that national emergency is given the definition of the CSIS Act. And we know from the Public Order Emergency Commission um, that the director of CSIS said, in his opinion, there was no threat to national security. So no national uh, emergency existed. Um, And then the second part of the test is that even if a national emergency does exist, the situation must be such that it cannot be dealt with by any other law in Canada. And we also argued that given police powers, given how the protest was actually ultimately cleared, which was bringing in tons of cops from across Canada and having them do pretty standard policing tactics, even the way that it was ultimately resolved did not require extraordinary emergency powers. And the judge essentially agreed with us on both of those sort of just really key points. Right. So the failure, for instance, and we, you know, we don't have to talk about the Rouleau decision at this point, but the failure of Ottawa police, for instance, to act uh, and also the sort of the idea that somehow uh, this wasn't being dealt with properly didn't didn't go begin to meet the threshold that you're talking about. In other words, um, police in action does not uh, justify the Emergencies Act. No, and that's a sort of really interesting, sharp contrast between the conclusions of Justice Rouleau and the conclusions of Justice Mosley, where Justice Rouleau said, well, functionally, you had a police breakdown, so maybe there was no other way to deal with this. And Justice Mosley says, that's getting into a really dangerous, slippery slope, that just because, you know, there was a failure of leadership, there was a failure of communication, that does not mean that there aren't other laws to deal with. And it certainly doesn't mean that there's national emergency. That's giving way too much leeway to the ineptitude of government bureaucracies, basically. And that is not what this legislation was intended for. Right. It was interesting that um, that in this case, uh, the judge said that uh, that at the outset, he sort of thought that, first of all, he, he thinks that the that the 
the blockades themselves uh, were an unacceptable breakdown of public order. And at the outset, he sort of agreed that the government, and he sympathized with the fact that the government didn't feel it had a lot of room to maneuver here, uh, but then said that he had essentially been convinced by by the parties, such as yourself, that this was in fact an overstep, which is an interesting way of looking at it because I think he was very, um, he was quite um, transparent about his thought process in all this. Yeah, it's unusual, but I think it's very human to go in with certain priors, certain assumptions. Um, what's more unusual is being open to having them change, but that really is the role of a judge. And I think the unique role of public interest litigants like ourselves and the CCLA is that unlike the Attorney General of Canada, which let's be honest, they they are the sort of lawyers for Canada, but they have obviously political incentives. Um, unlike private litigants, our job is really just to argue for the application of the Constitution. That is our charitable mandate. And what the judge was saying was, that was a really useful perspective to have, because this is a decision that's going to have historic precedent for all Canadians. So it was important to have a sort of nonpartisan uh, perspective represented. And apparently he found it persuasive. Yeah. And and for listeners to understand, Justice Mosley is perhaps one of the most respected uh, jurors in the country when it comes to these sorts of security issues. Yeah, absolutely. He has a long history. He also mentioned, by the way, that before he was a judge, he was actually a trucker. Right. <laughs> That's, I mean, if you if you if you look at what was determined, I mean, again, people's attitudes towards whether it was justified to blockade or not, or whether the cause itself was justified. I don't think uh, Justice Mosley was dealing with any of that today. He did mention again that he had, you know, that he continues to have sympathy for those in government who are confronted with the situation. But I, I think what was important here, and, and this is, I, we, well, I'll let you answer this, was that there needs to be boundaries. There needs to be boundaries, no matter how uncomfortable the situation is. And the Emergencies Act is should be a measure of last resort and 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 treat it as such. Yeah, absolutely. I think what he's saying was clear. Um, the argument of the government at the federal court hearings, which, of course, uh, I was present at, was that extraordinary deference is due to cabinet in this decision because they are apex decision makers. They're responding on the ground. And his response to that was, Yes, they deserve deference. We understand they have a hard job to do, but they understand that there are guardrails to their behavior, that there are very clear boundaries and they are presumed to know what the law is. They're presumed to have reviewed the law. And he just saw no reasonable sort of fact scenario where they could have taken the law seriously and still decided that they had to invoke the Emergencies Act. Um, so he wasn't real willing to defer quite to that extent. And I think that's good. In a constitutional democracy, we want there to be boundaries for the people that you know take action on behalf of us. Joanna Barron is executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one of the groups party to uh, a case that was heard by the federal court and a decision today uh, by Justice Mosley that found that uh, the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act during the so-called Freedom Convoy in Ottawa in 2022 was unreasonable, that it violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a very uh, consequential decision. Perhaps not a surprise that we've already heard that uh, from both the, the, the Deputy Prime Minister and from the Justice Minister that the federal government's going to appeal this. Um, what next? Well, the federal government has announced that they're going to appeal the decision, which I'm not surprised by. We had always known that this matter was ultimately going to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. It's clearly an important, historic, precedent-setting matter. This is the first time a judge has been called upon to sort of 
give him, him his or her imprimatur on what the Emergencies Act means, what test it requires. Um, but one thing that I want to zero in on that I thought was really interesting in Mr. Minister Freeland's comments uh, this afternoon, announcing that the federal government would appeal the decision, was she said, I want to remind Canadians of the tremendous uh, security risk, including to our economic security right. um, that was present during the convoy. And Justice Mosley uh, uh, addresses this squarely and looks at the type of security risk that the Emergencies Act is intended to address and says, no, we're really talking about threat of physical violence to persons or property, um, just a generalized economic harm. That's not the type of harm that uh, a law like this is aimed to address. And if it did extend to economic harm, you would think about what precedent that could set for things like strikes and labor disruptions, which certainly also pose economic harm. Um, and that's not territory that the judge said that we wanted to get into with emergency powers. Right. I, I, and so, John, I mean, I think what's interesting about this whole case is this isn't about the, the government of the day. This isn't about the partisan politics of the day. This is about how much power any government has, any federal government, to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, This is federal legislation that will apply to a conservative prime minister, an NDP prime minister, or a liberal prime minister. So everybody should be invested in getting this right. Yeah. And, and that must be, but that was the motivation. I mean, as as a public interest uh, group, that was the interest of your group and the, and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association to get involved in this case, right? It was about making sure that this this decision was tested before the courts. Yeah, absolutely. This was the first time the, the glass was broken on the most, you know, powerful, uh, powerful piece of legislation for arrogating powers to the federal government that we have. And so we, th- th- this was an opportunity to course correct, because obviously, you know, the decision to invoke it was made, uh, and then the, the, everybody moved on. But nonetheless, uh, those of us in the constitutional law community understand that if the standard is diluted in the way um, that was accepted by, for example, the Rouleau Commission, the standard would be diluted for any any Canadian politician going forward. For listeners who may think, well, wait a second, wasn't there a whole commission about this that said it was justified and now we have a court decision that says that it was unreasonable? <laughs> what should they make of it? Yeah, so the Rouleau Commission was actually not a formal, legally binding decision. It's a commission that is convened by the government. It's actually required by the text of the Emergency Act itself to convene a commission within one year of the invocation. Um, And its role was to look into the circumstances and rationale leading up to the invocation and the effectiveness of the measures brought by the government. Um, Of course, Justice Rouleau did opine on whether it was justified, but there was no sort of formal legal binding effect. It's not treated as precedent. I would even say, and this got a little bit confusing because Justice Rouleau is, of course, a judge, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, strictly speaking, a legal question that he was weighing in on. What what struck me about this, though, and and this is just uh, in the devil's advocate, forgive the pun, side, is that it did suggest that perhaps a federal government watching the inaction of things such as put the police in Ottawa, was kind of hamstrung to do anything about it unless it met these quite significant uh, legal thresholds. I mean, this was a very... It struck me as a unique situation that we that was faced in that little period of time um, where you'd find people who may agree with the ends and the means and others who may have agreed with the ends but not the means and others who didn't agree with either with any of it, right? So it's it was a curious case where a federal government was sort of maybe felt like it was... It, may, it maybe went ahead with something where... 
um, they should have waited, but the waiting was 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 getting was getting tough as far as they were concerned. Yeah, well, look, I think there are some questions that ought to be asked of Doug Ford, to be honest, who uh, refused to give evidence at the Public Order Emergency Commission. Um, But in the result, the way that the the convoy in Ottawa was resolved was by bringing a bunch of police officers, mostly from across Ontario, also from across the country, doing standard police tactics like kettling, crowd control, very effectively. None of these things required the Emergencies Act. You don't need the Emergencies Act to compel a truck driver or to compel a tow truck operator to tow a big rig truck. The things that you do need the Emergencies Act for are things like uh, freezing bank accounts without a warrant or uh allowing police to shut down any peaceful protests across Canada. And I would argue that those are measures that were not required to resolve this crisis. Right. And a judge agreed with you today. Where to now then from here? What what kind of timeline are we looking at uh, for this to continue? So I would imagine the federal government will file their notice of appeal immediately in the next few days. Um, I would expect within three to four months, we'll have a hearing date at the Federal Court of Appeal probably another six months after that for a decision. So all told, and then that will go to the Supreme Court. So I would say you're looking at about another two years until there's a final appellate determination of all of these issues. You'll have your work. You'll be busy, no doubt. Uh, Joanna, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your insight on this and, and explaining what this all means. Thanks so much, Ben. Oscar nominations came out. Not too many surprises. That's nominated for Best Song, along with uh, with I'm Just Ken. Uh, Ryan Gosling's nominated for Best Supporting Actor as well, if you're counting the Canadians in all this. Uh, interestingly enough, Oppenheimer uh, got 13 nominations. No surprise there. It was sort of everyone's favorite going in, including Best Picture and Best Director uh, for Christopher Nolan. Poor Things got 11 nominations. Barbie got eight, including Best Picture. But get this, neither the, the director, Greta Gerwig, nor Margot Robbie were nominated uh, for Best Director or Best uh, Actress in a Leading Role, which came as a bit of a surprise. Even um, uh, Ryan Gosling came out today and said, there is no Ken without Barbie and there's no Barbie movie without Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie, the two people most responsible for this history-making, globally celebrated film. No recognition would be possible for anyone on the film without their talent grit and genius. So uh, Ryan Gosling is always coming out to the defense of his co-stars today who were snubbed. The nominees for Best Picture, there are 10 of them, of course. American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Scorsese movie, Maestro, uh, Bradley Cooper's movie, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, uh, which is directed by a Canadian, uh, Canadian-Korean, Celine Song. Uh, we'll talk a bit about her. And uh, Poor Things, uh, and The Zone of Interest as well. There were some milestones, obviously. Lily Gladstone, who won at the Golden Globes, is the star of Killers of the Flower Moon, became the first Native American actress, not or na- first Native American nominated for Best Actress. And for the 10th time, Martin Scorsese was nominated for Best Director for that same movie. But yeah, some snubs, some surprises. Uh, no nomination for Best Director, for Greta Gerwig for Barbie. Uh, they did get a nod, she and Noah Baumbach, for the movie's adapted screenplay. Margot Robbie didn't get a nomination um, for Best Actress. And Leo DiCaprio did not get a nomination for Best Actor for Killers of the Flower Moon, even though he sort of features in it. Um, again, as I mentioned, Korean filmmaker, Korean-Canadian filmmaker Celine Song snagged the Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination for uh, the romantic drama Past Lives, which is an excellent movie. And uh, amongst the Canadians, uh, she's there, got 
Rosling, as I mentioned, um, Robbie Robertson, the late Toronto musician. He did the music, of course, for Killers of the Flower Moon. Quebec filmmaker Avesa René Lorty is there. The National Film Board of Canada film To Kill a Tiger uh, by Toronto-based director Anisha Pahuja was also nominated. Congratulations. And Nova Scotia filmmaker Ben Proudfoot has received a Best Short Documentary nod for co-directing The Last Repair Shop. Uh, from L.A., he told the Canadian press he's grateful to a lot of people back here at home. Sending all my love to to Canada, to Nova Scotia, all all my teachers who taught me and inspired me and, and gave me a love for music and the arts and theater and filmmaking. Wouldn't be here without you, and in many ways, this film is a tribute to you. You can catch the repair shop on YouTube, by the way. It's fantastic. Have a look. We're going to speak to him tomorrow night. He's going to be on the show, actually. Uh, ben Proudfoot will join us. For the moment, joining me now is Scott Mance. He's a film critic and entertainment journalist. Uh, thanks for your time. You were up bleary-eyed up early this morning like all the other L.A.-based journalists. Well, it is a great day. I mean, this is the only time, the only day of the year where my alarm goes off at 3 a.m. and I jump out of bed with excitement <laughs> because to be at the Academy headquarters, the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, during the nominations, I mean, it's a very, very quick morning. Everything happens within 20 minutes, and then everybody reacts and they run out the door. But it's very, very exciting because, Ben, with all these other award shows that are going on, whether it's the Critics' Choice, the Golden Globes, or whatever, SAG, Producers Guild, all that matters is the Oscars. The Oscars are the gold standard, and that's why people get the most excited about the Academy Awards. They do it really, you're right, they do it really, no wasting time these days. They run through those nominations to the extent where sometimes, when it comes to Best Picture now that there are 10 of them, I missed, I missed that past lives. I thought, oh no, she, you know, the Canadian director, uh, Canadian Korean director, Celine Song has been snubbed. And then I realized, no, no, you just missed it. Yeah, she, yeah, she got nominated for Best Picture yeah. and uh, Screenplay, but uh, not for director. I right. no one's expecting that to happen, but I think that people thought that, uh, uh, it would it would get nominated for for lead actress uh, for Greta Lee, but that didn't happen. Uh, you know, it's a lot of interesting so-called snubs and surprises. A couple glaring ones, which I'm sure we'll we'll go, we'll get into all that. But all ten Best Picture nominees, Ben. It is worth noting that all ten Best Picture Oscar nominees are the same as the ten. Best Picture nominees from the Producers Guild of America. Interesting. So they all matched. All ten of those movies matched. It felt like this was the year. I mean, we talked so much in the past about streaming and so on and so forth. It felt like this year was the year that the movie came back. And I don't mean to discredit movies that go right to streaming, but it felt like this year was the year that the, the cinema came back with Oppenheimer and Barbie over the summer uh, with, uh, with with Scorsese's movie. I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon. There, there were. It really felt like this was a year for movies in the Absolutely. theater. That's a that's a very accurate assessment, Ben, because, you know, last year, if movies like Top Gun Maverick and Elvis and everything everywhere all at once kicked the door back open for the theatrical exhibition movie going experience, this was really the year that that said, hey, we are we are back. and We're here to stay. And that happened all in one weekend with Barbenheimer, right. Barbie, you know, with 10 nominations, uh, uh, sorry, eight nominations. And that movie made about $1.5 billion worldwide. And then Oppenheimer, which led the way this morning with 13 nominations, that movie made $953 million worldwide, almost a billion. So there you go. Uh, it was definitely the year that the movie came back and in a big way.
And it certainly adds to the excitement when a, a fair number of people have seen the movies. I mean, I think that sometimes was, was part of the problem. These are movies like, you know, the Barbenheimer, the Oppenheimer and Barbie Summer. I think a lot of people saw the Scorsese movie, too. I think people will have seen Maestro. I mean, these are movies that people will have seen. And that adds it sort of feels like a like a throwback a little bit, which is great. Oh, absolutely. And, and and one thing that's really important to note, Ben, is that if people see the movies that are nominated, and in this case, they definitely have at least two of those big ones, then that means they're going to watch the Oscars on March 10th to see how those movies do. And the movie that's going to win Best Picture is a movie that played in theaters. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll get to that later in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, Oppenheimer was expected to do really well, and it did. So tell me about sort of the non-surprises. Everyone, I mean, it feels like Oppenheimer from the get-go has never lost its momentum. No, it really didn't. Uh, you know, the movie opened in the middle of the summer, July, I think it was July 12th, uh, when that movie opened. And it it just sort of like played, first of all, it, it played in theaters for six months before it went to digital. That is extremely rare these days before when a, when a movie, you know, usually movies play in theaters and then they're rushed out to, you know, Blu-ray or to digital, to streaming or whatever. But but they waited with Oppenheimer and, uh, you know, all all the season that has really been a front runner for so many reasons, you know, for picture director, screenplay, uh, lead actor for Killian Murphy, who won uh, the uh, uh, Golden Globe and for uh, lead actor drama. Of course, Robert Downey Jr., I feel like he is a lot to win the Academy Award for Supporting Actor, um, you know, and all the craft stuff like, you know, visual effects and, you know, uh, it, it was deserving of all of those nominations. It was predicted to lead the way and lead it did. Right. And, and that's your sense is that it will do really well come come Oscar night, that it's going to that that the things that we've expected to see. So best picture, best director, best actor, Robert Downey Jr. You mentioned as well that those are all not locks, but that those would be your favorites heading in. Absolutely. And I would say that Downey at this point is a lock. I mean, if there is an upset in supporting actor it would be Ryan Gosling playing Ken in the Barbie movie. I mean, that could happen. I mean, he's certainly a very close second. But I do think that, you know, Best Picture, uh, if not a lock, it's very, very close to it. I actually think that if there is a movie that could sort of upset Oppenheimer to win Best Picture, it would be The Holdovers. Right. Uh, Holdovers is a feel-good crowd pleaser. It's a wonderful movie. And it could be sort of the uh, the green book of this year, the movie that every, you know, certainly commercially was did very well. And a lot of people liked it because it was a feel-good movie. Not and hard not to like Paul Giamatti too, who's also nominated for Best Actor. I suppose if it were to win Best Picture, you might look for an upset in that category too. Well, you know, here's the thing, Ben, about Paul Giamatti. So he's nominated for lead actor for for The Holdovers, which was directed by Alexander Payne. Mm-hmm. Now, 19 years ago, when those two guys worked together before for Sideways, right? Paul Giamatti was certainly talked about to get nominated for that film. And he did not get nominated. That was a very, very big snub. I remember that like yesterday. It was such a big snub that Paul Giamatti was not nominated for Sideways. So now here he is back with another film directed by Alexander Payne, and he gets nominated. And then he wins uh, Best Actor Comedy at the Golden Globes, and he wins Best Actor at the Critics' Choice Awards. So he is the front runner yes. for, for that yeah. movie. Sandra Oh and Paul Giamatti really carried sideways. And I'm glad to see they both got on to actually win in the in the long run. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> on, on, on the on the uh, supporting actress and actress side, I mean, I guess it's going to be a pretty 
a pretty heavy race. We have obviously history in the making with Lily Gladstone. We saw that at the Golden Globes, but some some real competition there too with Emma Stone and so on. Well, with a lead actress uh, is an interesting category because, uh, you know, Emma Stone is certainly the front runner at this point, And she already has an Academy Award for La La Land. I, no one's going to forget that no. Academy Award ceremony. That was with the envelope. You know, Lily Gladstone became the first Native American actor to win or to get nominated for an Academy Award for an acting category. You know, Carrie Mulligan from Maestro. I mean, it's always talked about that she would get nominated so here's where it gets interesting. Margot Robbie is Barbie. The movie is called Barbie, and Margot Robbie doesn't get nominated for lead actress. That was a big surprise. And the guests yeah. uh, in the room this morning at the uh, Samuel Goldwyn Theater at the Academy, people were genuinely shocked because Annette Benning definitely, uh, I love that film, Nyad. I thought it was a wonderful film. It's streaming now on Netflix. It's a feel-good crowd pleaser. Jodie Foster got nominated for lead a- uh, supporting actress. But, you know, Annette Benning, who is a uh, is now a five-time Oscar nominee, she's never won. Uh, she hasn't been nominated since 2010's The Kids Are All Right. But then she got nominated just recently for a SAG Award for lead actress. So I went, I'll bet you she gets nominated for lead actress. At right. the and that's what happened. Oh, mysterious so, ways, mysterious so, ways. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the Academy does love Annette Benning. I mean, this is now her fifth nomination. So while I keep saying that Emma Stone is kind of a lock to win, you know, maybe not. You know, the thing about Poor Things is that it's kind of a weird movie. And, right. And Annette Benning and Nyad, it's based on a true story about never being too old to follow your dreams. I mean, who wasn't, what a cat. It's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi, Barbie. 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 Scott Mance is a film critic and entertainment journalist. We're talking about the Oscar nominations out this morning. He was there alongside a lot of, I would say, somewhat bleary-eyed L.A. journalists because it happens really early in the morning. Um, But I'm sure some of the nominations were caused to, to uh, to, to wake people up pretty quick. Funny that Barbie, that Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated for Best Director, uh, which was seemed to snub. And you already mentioned Margot Robbie uh, for Lead Actress in, in that movie as well. Odd, you would have thought that if the movie was going to be nominated for Best Picture, America Ferreira is nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Ryan Gosling, of course, the Canadian, nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But weird that it was left out of some of those, that some of its real headliners were left out of that one. That for sure. I, I think all the drama this morning was really centered around Barbie, because like you said, America Ferreira got nominated for supporting actress and uh, a lot of people felt like that boiled down to this one moment in the film when she gives this monologue that everybody went crazy for and you know that they're going to use that clip at the oscars when they announce the nominees for best supporting actress right but then you know like we talked about already ben the snub for margot robbie as an actress you know she is nominated as a producer but not as an actress that was a snub but then also like you point out uh, Greta Gerwig not nominated for Barbie. So the nominees for Best Director, Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer, Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things. Those three names were definitely predicted to get nominated for Best Director. Then maybe Alexander Payne for The Holdovers. You know, maybe he'll get nominated. It wasn't really a shock that he wasn't. 
but it was definitely a big shock that that Greta Gerwig was not nominated for Barbie. I mean, the movie didn't direct itself. It definitely has a unique look to it, you know, when it comes to like production design and hair and makeup and wardrobe and all that stuff. But I think it is worth pointing out, and and this really struck me this morning during the announcements, when the Academy president came on and said, the Academy now has almost 11,000 members from 93 countries around the world. Wow. That fact those stats are reflected in the nominations because uh the zone of interest and anatomy of a fall were both nominated for five academy awards and both of those movies were nominated for both best picture and best director so you have Jonathan Glazer nominated as director for Zone of Interest and Ju- Ju- Justine Triate for uh Anatomy of a Fall right so- Really art house. I mean, we would get to use old terms. You'd consider those sort of art house movies, not the ones that normally find themselves in these uh, necessarily in these big categories, at least not every year. That's true. That's true. And again, this this goes to the fact that the Academy has increased. its. I would say more than doubled its membership in the last like seven or eight years. It used to be just over 4000 members. Now it's almost 11. And, you know, you've got the gender balance. You've got the diversity uh, that that now makes up the Academy. And again, you have a lot of international voters and, you know, their their tastes are a little more, uh, I would say, uh, particular and that's why you have movies like zone of interest and anatomy of a fall getting into the big categories i, I suppose there could be an, i mean i saw barbie i thought it was thought it was super entertaining uh, there could be a case i made I, I suppose made for the fact that it's nominated for best picture and the best supporting uh, actor and actress and so on but it feels like that movie was such a big risk and it doesn't make it unless Greta Gerwig does her thing and everyone plays off Margot Robbie. And that's what I was a bit disappointed in because I thought that movie doesn't – you don't have Greta – you don't have Ryan Gosling's Ken or America Ferrera's character if you don't have Margot Robbie playing the character at the center of it all. All right. So, so two interesting things to point out here, Ben. One, leading up to the release of Barbie, a lot of journalists, entertainment journalists and critics and – uh, uh, you know, press people who cover the movie industry, they were all like, hey, what, what do you think about Barbie? Like what, you know, this movie could really go either way. That was what they were saying. It could go either way. It could either be a big hit or it could be a total flop. So of course it became a big, massive, monstrous hit that really touched a nerve with women, young women and older women. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was at a movie for another film for a press screening and I saw saw mothers taking their daughters and they're all wearing pink. Now, the other thing, because this is a movie that made $1.5 billion worldwide, I will go so far as to say that Barbie is this year's Top Gun Maverick. And by that, I mean a very popular film that everyone loved that made $1.5 billion worldwide, but was not seen enough as a true breakthrough at the Oscars because just like Tom Cruise did not get nominated for Top Gun and its director, Joseph Kaczynski, did not get nominated for Best Director, you have the same situation here with Barbie where lead actress Margot Robbie, not nominated. Director Greta Gerwig, not nominated. Maybe they thought, oh, it made enough money and and uh, it doesn't need to get those kinds of nominations, which I think is BS because uh, Oppenheimer made almost a billion dollars and that got nominated for almost everything. 
Right. That reminds me, when I went to see Killers of the Flower Moon, Taylor Swift's Eros tour was playing in the theater next to us. So the place oh, shook throughout the whole movie or most of the movie. I'm uh, so sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Scott, uh, I, I, well, we'll, we'll catch up. Uh, we'll catch up on after Oscars night. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting story. It's always interesting when technology starts to help conditions that can be really difficult to deal with. The good news you'll know these days is that more and more people, Canadians, uh, are, are surviving strokes, right? But many are living with functional limitations that pose increasing demands on their families and on the healthcare system. In fact, stroke, I didn't know this, is the leading cause of long-term disability in adults worldwide. In Canada, about 85 to 90% of stroke survivors return to their own environment with or without support services, by the way. Uh, So regaining mobility and strength after a stroke is ideal, right? But it can be a real uphill battle. Uh, But that's where technology is starting to offer a helping hand in more ways than one. One of those being tested right now is something called, it's a new smart glove that tracks your hand and finger movements. Um, It's being developed at UBC, the University of British Columbia, in partnership with a Vancouver startup uh, called Tech Savvy. And this month, a group of stroke survivors in BC are testing the new technology designed to aid their recovery and ultimately restore use of their limbs and hands. Payment Servati is CEO of Tech Savvy and a professor of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at UBC. And he joins me now. Payment, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. This is an interesting uh, development. I mean, first of all, it, it, if you see it, and I highly recommend you Google it, because you always think of these things as being sort of clunky. And this one is not clunky at all. It looks like it looks like a glove. Yes, it uh, looks like a glove and feels like a glove. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a smart glove that uh, consists of um, highly sensitive sensor yarns. So the sensors are in form of yarns that we uh, weave it uh, into the stretchy fabric of the comfortable glove. It can sense uh, stretch and pressures as the person who is wearing it, um, uh, they move their hand. Right. And, I, I, yes. Yeah, go ahead. And by using uh, artificial intelligence that uh, we developed with this, that works with these sensors, uh, this is the most accurate glove that we know of that can track hand and finger movements as well as uh, f- forces of grasp as we are grasping an object uh, right. without requiring camera. Because therein lies the issue, right? Those who are trying to, to regain mobility and strength, say in a hand, um, oftentimes, first of all, it, it's a long and repeated process. They have to be monitored a lot while they're doing this to see how their progress is coming along. And in the past, that's always been, I guess with cameras, uh, that's expensive, right? It's, uh, uh, it's expensive. And also uh, one of the challenges uh, is that it can be less accurate in a low-cost camera. So the, you can have a very uh, expensive camera setting for, that is used for motion capture. So we compare our tech to that technology. But if you use uh, um, more of a basic cameras uh, or not a studio versions that surround your hand completely, and some of these require markers to be set up um, on, on the hand, then the accuracy will be lower. The other problem is um, that um, it doesn't really tell anything about uh, the forces of grasp that are very important for these uh, patients 
because they want to really gain uh, their mobility as well as the strength when they're handling an object during their daily activities. Simple tasks that we get for uh, granted, they, they may have difficulty in performing them uh, from, uh, from typing on a keyboard to uh, handling different uh, tasks that they have during the day. So, so tell me how it, how this um, how this is working now. You have a group of of, of people who who are trying to regain a mobility and strength following a stroke. And how does it work? You, you're basically uh, you, you, they wear the glove, and then you're monitoring a bunch of stuff, right? But it's to help them with their it's to see if the rehab is working. Is that right? Yes. So uh, we work with one of the leading um, uh, experts in the in this area, Professor Janice Ong at UBC. From, uh, from the uh, Faculty of Medicine. And uh, she has developed methods to, uh, for, for the patients to repeat specific movements to improve their grasp, to improve their hand mobility. However, this requires um, a lot of repetitions, hundreds, thousands of repetitions that they need to do. And uh, for basically the brain to, de- to redevelop those controls for the hand. And it's not easy at all. So these repetitions need to uh, uh, continue. And the, our hope in this pilot study uh, uh, is that uh, with this ta- type of technology, we monitor the hand when the patient is wearing them and uh, uh, tell the, both the clinician and the patient um, what are the most important points that uh, the patient is lacking? And they can, the, uh, the expert can then um, tune, uh, tailor their uh, rehab process so that they focus on the specific movements and exercise that they need to do. And these things is, uh, first of all, as you mentioned, it's over a long period of time. And also it needs to be modified as they and move forward because they they move forward and they plateau and they need to really modify it. Uh, right, and so conceivably this is, this is yeah. something that someone could do on their own. Right, they they don't need the cameras; they could do it by themselves and again get that feedback within the comforts of their own home. I would expect in, in the grand scheme of things. Yes, yes. So that's one of the most uh, important things that this type of technology will enable. Um, Having people visit hospitals is not easy, and um, having the possibility to basically send this this glove to patients' home, and they can um, uh, they can practice using it, and the uh, doctor can see how the patient is actually progressing, how many repetitions they're doing, what type of modification they should uh, put in their routine, and um, also one. Um, Important future um, features that we are looking to add is to add games. Uh, you can have different types of games that not only uh, help the patient to improve, but also uh, motivate them to uh, use this device and get through those repetitions that need to happen. Right. How has the reaction been? I know it's, it's early days, but how's the reaction been from your group? So uh, we, uh, we were really impressed. So we published uh, our results as 
um, one of the most uh, one of the most accurate gloves in the market right now uh, in uh, Journal of Nature just came out. So we got a lot of press and activity from there. Uh, and patients who were using this, they got very excited about the potential of this technology. I was very impressed coming from technical field and uh, working with Professor Ang and others to see how impactful this type of technology can be on uh, patients who um, are struggling to find a solution for uh, this problem. Right. Just so, because it's hard sometimes if you can't see it. Um, again, as I mentioned, it looks like it looks like a normal glove. It doesn't look like anything massive, or it just looks like a normal glove. Obviously, the sensors are all woven into it. I gather you can even wash it if you take the battery out. Um, but what is it? How is it reading stuff? And where do you it just pops up on a screen? You can sort of see your hand in in sort of three D, and you can tell what's where it's where the pressure is working, and where it's not. Yes. So. Um... Uh, so the, the technology is, uh, as I mentioned, you have uh, sensors in form of yarn. So they're very, uh, f- very fine uh, in terms of integration. Um, it's very comfortable. Uh, it's breathable. You can wash it, as you mentioned. It's wireless. So we have been working on this to be this type of comf- uh, comfortable glove. Um, and basically when the data comes in, data right now, uh, for example, for these patients, we analyze the data. Uh, we have an app that we are uh, working to release uh, um, to uh, basically see uh, on the eye, it can be connected to, for example, eye, um, a tablet or a mobile phone or a computer, uh, and basically gives the feedback in terms of the type of exercise uh, the, pa- the patient needs to do, repetitions, and how strong they need to do, for example, show, uh, show them what parts they need to modify. Uh, but there, um, there are many possibilities uh, for this. This is a device that connects um, our hand in a very accurate way to digital world. So there are many possibilities to develop games um, or uh, functions that um, the clinicians want to implement for the patient. Sizzlin' Steve writes, I am a stroke survivor. I used a Rubik's Cube to help with my rehab. We're talking about rehab today and how important it is to get that strength and mobility back. Not necessarily solving it, but just the hand and finger movements. By the way, I can do the Rubik's Cube. My best time is just short of one minute. That's pretty pretty impressive. Practice makes perfect. But yeah, I mean, we've been talking today about just trying to regain that mobility and the rehab around uh, following a stroke and, and, and the long process it is. And also, how do you monitor it to see if it's improving, if you're actually heading in the right direction? And uh, one of the ways that that's being helped out now, and there's a group of stroke survivors here in BC that are testing this technology right now. It's a smart glove developed by uh, Texavia, or Texavia, which is a company uh, CEO, Payman Servati, is with us this half hour talking about it. He's a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at UBC as well. So where to with the glove after this? Because I know you can't buy one just yet, uh, but what's uh, what, what lies ahead for uh, for the project? Yes, so uh, we are at, uh, in our startup, we are working hard uh, on, um, uh, we have developed the manufacturing processes for this. This is an advanced product, and we have developed ad- manufacturing processes to manufacture this, at the scale in BC and in Canada. 
And um, we are very excited about that. So we are working hard to bring it to market for use for um, uh, different people. Uh, we are looking at a variety of applications for this glove. Um, since uh, it's one of the most accurate gloves to capture hand movements and also grasp forces. Uh, for example, when you wear this glove, you can um, actually start typing on any surface without the need of a physical keyboard as an example oh. application. Um, and uh, you don't need a camera or anything. You just kind of start typing. Uh, so there are lots of application for this. We are looking into that. We are looking um, in many applications for gaming, developing gaming with more sophisticated hand movements that are embedded in the game. Um, we have uh, in our publication in Nature, we have shown that um, it can accurately detect um, 100 static and dynamic gestures, uh, complex gestures adapted from American Sign Language. So basically, in real time, translate sign language that are uh, from hand into text. So there are, there are many applications that we are uh, looking at um, uh, and working with um, uh, with uh, part industrial partners to um, explore um, using and developing right. applications for it. Yeah. So conceivably, anything that that detects anything that involves hand motion, right? <laughs> Just about anything that would involve hand motion could could fall under this at some point. Hand motion and especially applications that uh, you want to you're comfortable to wear a glove. For example, uh, telesurgery. The the uh, you can um, wear the glove to remote do remote surgeries or uh, robotics uh, you can wear the glove to control the robot and because this can capture very complex hand movements uh, you can imagine that um, um, it can help even robots to learn uh, we, uh, we, we have very complex hand movements <laughs> so robots right. can learn from us <laughs> Interesting. Well, well, Payman, thank you so much for sharing uh, your, your technology with me and uh, look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much for having me. you here on this Thursday night. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of the introduction. Do you remember a $6 million man? I was actually speaking to someone the other day who didn't. But um, of course, it was a very, very impressive. I was impressionable at that age. I must have been about five or six when I first saw uh, the $6 million man. And I was just blown away by it. Uh, I think we have the introduction to the show with the talking part that sort of talks through the origin story uh, of Steve Austin. Let's have a listen. Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. 
better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. There you have it, right? I mean, that was probably the most exciting, one of the most exciting moments in my childhood when that started. Now, the plots could be a little ridiculous sometimes, but uh, wow, I was really impressed with the $6 million man when I was young. Um, We can rebuild him, says Oscar Goldman, but for how much? Back in 1974, and that was 50 years ago, right? 50 years ago this month, uh, the $6 million man debuted as its TV series. There'd been some made-for-TV movies beforehand uh, that were immensely popular, uh, but then this TV series started in January of 1974. So six million dollars back then was enough to rebuild Steve Austin. New arm, an eye, a pair of legs, super strength, super speed, vision, all that stuff, all that wow stuff that he could do. Um, today we might call him the 37 million dollar man. I did the calculation. You could do that sort of what would it be worth today? And apparently six million dollars in 1974 when adjusted for inflation in 2024 is about 37 million. Uh, but my next guess says it would be more than that because there'd be R&D involved uh, that would be really expensive. And that even then, even then, even then, it wouldn't have the superpowers because I think there was a sense when you were young back then uh, in, the, in the 70s, obviously, you know, if you were young or not. Not that young, uh, that maybe we would get this far by now, 50 years later. Maybe we'd be able to have something that looked like those kinds of superpowers. Um, but we have come a really long way, obviously, since the 70s in all kinds of technology around prosthetics and so on. It has been unbelievable. It just hasn't been that, right? Um, so I thought I would call, we thought we would call Gregory uh, Shurkidjian. He is chair of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Delaware, the College of Engineering. He's also a long time and a very big $6 million fan, $6 million man fan. And many moons ago, he was asked these very same questions, I think back in 2008 or maybe 2014 on the 40th anniversary. So we thought we'd call him back and get an update on uh, on the $6 million man 50 years later. Uh, Gregory, thank you for your time tonight. Now, my pleasure. I remember when I was a kid, maybe eight years old, and it first came out, I was the biggest fan. Oh, it, I mean, I was, a, I was, I probably saw the first episodes. We didn't have cable. So I probably, I envied anyone who had seen the show because there were, there was those figurines and everything, but I remember mm-hmm. seeing it. It just blew me away. I mean, the, the whole premise blew me away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I saw the whole thing. The $6 million man, the bionic woman, all the sequel, sequel movies, et cetera. Did it have anything to do with your choice of career? I think probably it did. I think between the $6 million man and Battlestar Galactica, I think, uh, you know, maybe Space 1999, I think those three uh, probably set my career in motion. So tell me a bit about that, because I remember at the time in 19, you know, probably the mid 70s, $6 million sounded like an awful lot of money. In fact, I remember there was a character on the show called the $7 million man who was even more luxurious. But uh, I mean, back in the day, that was a lot of money for what uh, for what this sort of new age, new age technology was meant to do to uh, to the human body. Right. Yeah, I think it wasn't clear whether the $7 million man was. Seven million because of inflation, or because he was right. that much better. But uh, it was the seventies. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but, you know, in some ways, of course, there's been inflation since then. So I don't know what $6 million then would be worth today, maybe 50. But the technology has uh, that exists now uh, was not even imagined back then. So uh, what's possible now is, you know, at a much higher level than what was possible back then. Of course, what could be imagined back then was not what could be done back then. So, you know, so that's why it was science fiction rather than science. Yeah, not 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 a cell phone, not not a mobile phone in sight, or not a not a smartphone in sight in the whole series. Uh, tell me a bit about about the actual the about Steve Austin though, the six million dollar man at the time, what they did to him, and just how. I mean, it felt like science fiction, yet it was just realistic enough, except for maybe the fembots and that stuff. But it was just realistic <laughs> enough for you to think, wait a second, this could be there could be a secret laboratory somewhere doing this kind of work. Right. Well, the idea of interfacing prosthetic limbs, I think even back then was not too far of a reach. Although most prosthetics are passive, I mean, going way back, you know, you, you could even find prosthetics going back, I don't know, uh, 100 years or more, uh, wearable things where you scrunch your shoulders and it actuates an elbow or, or uh, a hand to grip or something like that. So the idea of wearing a prosthetic is certainly realistic and existed before. The idea of interfacing actuated robotic limbs to the actual person and having the person effortlessly command those artificial limbs with their mind rather than uh, with their uh, muscles or uh, other parts of the body. That actually, it, we're getting to be able to do that now. It could not be done at that time, but it was in sight, let's say, right? right. I mean, taking brainwave scans and then sort of transmitting it through a computer. You could imagine, at least at that point, uh, that that could be used to control limbs or to send the signals to control limbs. I mean, the idea of powerful motors and electronics and, you know, just like in the opening of the show where it shows, you know, there's a leg here and there's circuitry inside and things like that. So that could be imagined back then. Several technologies now, you know, like battery power now is much uh, higher density than it was back then. So, you know, we have electric vehicles uh, and the batteries in our phones and laptops. So those auxiliary technologies are making things more possible also. I mean, back then, if it was a lead acid battery, like in your car, and and Steve Austin had to carry that around, you yeah, know, that, two of them. that would yeah. have been a yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, that would be a problem. Yeah, it, it was interesting though because at the time it seemed, you know, the idea that of, of that interface, as you mentioned, between robotics and the human body, the idea that you could enhance somebody so that they could run, you know, nearly a hundred kilometers an hour, that they had twenty to one zoom lenses in the built into their eye and infrared capabilities, and that his ability to hear at long distances and lift heavy things, like it all seemed so. Well, it all seems so futuristic at the same time. Uh, you sort of thought, well, that must be where we're headed. And yet in many ways, I guess, when you look at the last 50 years of a robotic since the first season of The Six Million Dollar Man, it's made, uh, as you put it, made advances we never could have, they never predicted, but are in some ways different and just as impressive. Yeah, like, I don't think anyone expected phones would be something that, although maybe in Star Trek, there were communicators and things, but I don't think anyone thought that phones would be something that's not on the wall of your home 
back then it was even still dialing rather than push button. Uh, but that, that the phone is something that's in your pocket and you carry around with you. And not only that, you take pictures with it. Uh, it. You know, the idea that a phone is something you take pictures with back then, I mean, was, you know, there were Kodak cameras or Polaroids or whatever, and those were cameras and these were phones and completely separate things. But now it's completely integrated. So, yeah, so I would say a lot of the the computers, phones, and the, you know, electronic devices, entertainment has driven a lot of technology, even video games and you know, the powerful computers that have resulted, like NVIDIA chips and things, are a result of really entertainment, but they're very useful in real robotics applications. Right. So, so I mean, I guess when one looks back at what the $6 million man, or the bionic woman for that matter, or the, the bad the baddies and, the, you know, the fembots and the computer guy and all that stuff, robotics has come such a long way when you think about how it's integrated into our, uh, you know, into manufacturing and so on, but it never got it's never gotten to that, right? Well, uh, yeah. And how shall I say this? I think there are some <laughs> things that, I mean, you know, in a science fiction fantasy show that will never happen. Uh, and then there are other things that will happen more than what, what could have been uh, imagined at that time. So, for example, the idea that now soft materials that can be more easily integrated or uh, neural, direct neural connections, you know, I, I don't think those were on the horizon at that time. It, you know, a robot was a hard thing made of, of metal, and even the bionic, you know, parts, you know, were supposed to be very sort of rigid. So yeah, more they did soft. look rigid. They did look rigid. Yeah, very rigid, <laughs> uh, which brings up a real-world issue of the interface even if the robotic or prosthetic device is very strong and rigid, it's interfacing to the person. So if Steve Austin is going to lift up a car, well, the weight of the car is not only held by the arm, but it's transmitted to his shoulder and the rest of his body, which was not bionic. So then, you know, the rest of the body has to carry that weight. So so that would be that's a part that's not realistic, right? It's You can't yeah. just have isolated parts that are... Uh, have great strength and have that transmit uh, through. On the other hand, something like a force extender, like uh, like in the Aliens movie when you know Sigourney Weaver is fighting the alien with her uh, power suit. Yeah, in that uh, sort of lifter, mechanic lifter looking thing. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So there, that's actually transmitting the force all the way down to the ground, past the person rather than through the person. Five-year-old me would have been very disappointed to find that out, but it makes sense. Right, Gregory, me as well, yeah. me as yeah. well. Gregory Turkian is with us this half hour, chair of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Delaware and the College of Engineering. Uh, Gregory, I guess what's been really interesting, if you think back to what they did with Steve Austin, is that nowadays... That's not what you'd want to do to to a soldier who'd been injured, right? You want to make them, you want to give them the capacity to live a normal life, not run 70, 60 miles an hour, right? Well, I, there was the motivation in the show of, you know, recruiting him as a secret agent or whatever. Right. So uh, there's that. But yes, restoring normal function uh, is, is I think, the primary concern of folks who do prosthetics and orthotics uh, these days. And I think there has been uh, tremendous progress. It's not my specific area within robotics, mm. but uh, there are, for example, at the, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, they came up with a a prosthetic arm, which does 
Uh, it, it's actually attached to the wearer. There's a, there are sensors, uh, a sensor ring that fits around the residual uh, limb and takes the the, the muscle uh, contraction signals and uses that to control the hand and the elbow. So so that's a that's a great advance. Um, there's been great advances in in various kinds of robots, like the Boston Dynamics. Uh, you know, you've seen the Atlas and mm. the, the the various Spot and the, the Big Dog and all of these things. Sort of how to balance, how robotic systems can balance and flip and do superhuman kind of maneuvering. Many of the elements are, are there for for what we saw in the Six Million Dollar Man. Maybe not leaping up uh, high buildings or jumping down uh, another you know for the bionic woman the the uh the ear i mean i think there's been great yeah. advances in artificial you know cochlear implants and the ability to restore uh or enhance uh hearing that's very realistic in my right. view so, so if we were to uh, this is the six million dollar question if we were to fast forward to 2024 50 years later what might how much might it cost and what would the six million dollar man potentially realistically now because I think everyone assumed that 50 years down the road that this you know this would be reality right to some extent naively perhaps but can't predict the future but if you were to do answer the six million dollar question what do you think it might be worth now to build something like that and what realistically would you be able to do in those situations robotically with a in injured Steve Austin in 2024. I know this is very hypothetical right. for someone in your shoes, but still. Wow. Yeah, that's a big one. So uh, so I'll give it the caveat again that, I mean, I'm a roboticist, but yes. I don't do prosthetics myself. Of in course, my of course. Research. Yeah. But just looking from the outside, amputees can run very, very well with blades. Right. Right. So the question becomes, when is an active robotic leg the right answer as opposed to wearing blades like that? So, so if, if, if the question is, can, can we have artificial limbs that allow people to run fast? The answer is yes, we, we, have, we have blades, right? If the answer or if the question is a robotic arm that allows people to pick stuff up that's very, very heavy, then it comes back to what I mentioned before right. is that the force has to be transmitted past the rest of the person uh, to the ground or from the bionic arm to the bionic leg with some kind of bionic yeah. torso enhancer or something. You'll never solve that problem, right? You're just never going right, to solve that. Right. That, that's you the can't. unsolvable problem of, of the, 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 the Achilles heel in the, in the $6 million man. Any guesses on, on what... I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but any guesses on a dollar figure? The last I saw was like $100 million. It would be sort of 50 to $100 million today to build 1974's $6 million man. Yeah, I mean, given the caveats that the force and the leaping from tall buildings and things would yeah. not uh, be possible, uh, but you know, restoring a person's function, an arm and two legs. Well, the eye is a whole other thing. I mean, the eye is actually, I mean, based on how cameras, uh, the the CCD cameras and and uh, the technologies for neural interfaces have come along. The eye itself, I don't see it being very far. Uh, from reality, uh, the neural interface may be a problem, and it wouldn't be like in the show where, you know, in the sh at the beginning of the show they show there's the eye, and then it's like penetrating half, you know, all the way to the back of the brain. Yeah, uh, and, and it wouldn't be that because I don't think we know how how to. Uh, well, you don't want to be that invasive anyway. I'll put no. it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> well 
Yeah. So so but but if we're talking about uh yeah the the same kind of prosthetics uh the eye arm to leg yeah I think and with some kind of neural interfaces and then there's the upkeep right you know you yes. buy the you buy the car but then you need the uh the maintenance policy right yeah. so <laughs> it's getting complicated compl- that's the problem with being an adult Gregory is that it, that it gets complicated right it does six year old they thought this is great this is awesome and now I realize of course he would dislocate his shoulder yeah right so but I yeah maybe 100 million yeah. yeah. If ah, anybody wants guess. to invest a hundred million, I could give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pin you. I'm not going to try to hold you to that one. <laughs> Gregory, listen, thank you. I, I, given your situation, uh, thank you so much for, for, for indulging in that conversation as fellow uh, $6 million and Bionic Woman fans. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure.